0: I wanted to do something that was a little bit colder and a little bit more barren in a way. They used to be happy, but now this is kind of the winter of their relationship, so I wanted to find a location that felt very stark and very uninviting in a way.
1: On his new Icelandic thriller, Rift. We'll explore the film's eerie setting and stunning scenery today on the cinema show. Also ahead.
2: I grew up in Brooklyn in the 90s, and you know, it was still kind of on the cusp of being, you know, a more progressive city and. You know, when I went back to these neighbourhoods, they still felt very isolated.
1: If you thought living in the big city might make it easier to come out and be yourself, well, director Eliza Hittman is here to tell us the other side of the story with her new film, Beach Rats, and...
3: It's a movie that is true to Vendor's aesthetic as a director, very emotional with city scenes and honouring the space around it.
1: German filmmaker Wim Wenders has just been awarded an Order of Merit by the Portuguese president. We'll find out how his love affair with Lisbon began at the old palace scene in his 1994 film Lisbon Story. That's all to come on The Cinema Show on Monocle 24.
3: Let me ask you all something. How'd you feel about getting high with a <laughs> You don't do this much, do you? Please tell me what's going on. I'm fine.
1: If you're fortunate enough to be growing up gay in a major liberal minded city in 2017, surely it's easy enough to simply be gay. Eliza Hitman's second feature decimates that assumption with devastating clarity in this thinly plotted drama set in a working class beachfront neighbourhood of Brooklyn. On the verge of adulthood, Frankie spends his days wandering the streets shirtless with his similarly chiseled friends before spending nights online hunting for hookups with older gay men. Have you ever made out with a girl before?
3: Sure, lots of times. It's just hot when two girls make out.
1: You think it's hot when two guys make out? There have been many films made about the difficulty one experiences when coming to terms with their sexuality, but Beach Rats avoids the familiar coming-out dialogue and instead presents an honest portrait of the contradictions and deeply unwelcoming cultural atmosphere that persists even in some of our most liberal cities. I asked Eliza Hittman how, as a female director, she managed to step inside the minds of these characters.
2: I was definitely nervous. I don't think that men have any fear around inhabiting female psychology or sexuality, but I think that women can be crucified, you know, if they don't render things authentically or if they don't. I don't know, I think women can be crucified for stepping out of their lane, so there was more nervousness around that than there was in, could I do a good job, you know, I trust my ability as a writer. I don't think that there's one experience either, you know, it's not like every man shares the same experience on this planet, you know, I was writing from a specific point of view and a specific character that was informed by a specific place. So to say, could I render a gay man's experience authentically sort of implies that all of their experiences are the same, which they're not. And I was inventing a character. I was just hoping that people would identify with the character. You know, I wasn't trying to write to everybody's experience, per se.
1: One of the questions I think it asks is whether you can actually be gay without identifying as gay. Because as he mentions at one moment during the film, he's in the car with someone and he says, well, he doesn't really think of himself as Mm -hmm. gay, and yet he has sex with men. He
2: hasn't reached that point yet in his process of understanding who he is. He's just responding to his desire and testing the waters, and he hasn't gotten to that point.
1: What are your thoughts on how these characters are portrayed in films generally i suppose because the general story when when we do get a gay character on screen is that either it's a coming out story and the and the resolution is that they come out and embrace themselves or they're already out and it's about them finding love there's almost always some sort of open and shut case with this but in reality as a lot of us will know that there are people out there who struggle with their sexuality for their entire lives, and it's not because they're unfortunate enough to be living in some sort of country where it's it's not easy. It is simply because it's just not easy for everyone, regardless of where they are. Do you think that perhaps there is a bit of a minefield there where we haven't really explored a lot about what these sorts of people might actually go through.
2: I think that when I was first sort of writing the script for the film and letting people read it, some people's response was like, oh, this is dated, you know, in some way, because like you said, it's either one or the other. For me, it was always about somebody in this in-between zone. And, you know, I think there's room on the spectrum in cinema for all different types of characters at all different experiences. Also, like, I approached the film thinking about it in terms of lost youth, this kind of idea of these marginalized, like, kids and characters. I don't know if I approached it sort of so exclusively through the lens of, like, gay cinema and, like, where it would fit on that shelf necessarily. I think I just really tried to write about a world that I knew more than I was thinking about like whether it would be accepted or rejected into a genre.
1: The world that he starts to explore with the the hookups online Mm -hmm. and the sex that happens in in the shadows, he doesn't doesn't bring men home. He always has sex in some sort of outdoor area. You get, as a viewer, you get the feeling that you're venturing somewhere that is a little bit dangerous. It's Mm -hmm. out of most people's comfort zone. How did you get a grasp on how that would feel authentic? Was there some sort of research process that you had to go through to try and work out how does it actually feel for these people to have these sorts of experiences?
2: Mm-hmm. Some of the spots that he goes to are real cruising spots on the coastal edge of Brooklyn. And for part, I hate to say part of the research, it sounds sort of funny to say that, but you know, I did spend some time observing people, people getting out of cars and disappearing into the darkness. So I looked at it a bit from an aesthetic point of view, you know, and how it what happens when you watch sort of bodies moving through brush in the middle of the night where there's like no street lights and no way to really be seen. And, you know, thinking about what that would feel like as a nineteen year old kid and thinking about the sort of horror esque qualities to it and how You know, there is, for both men and women, there is something unpredictable about having a certain kind of experience and wanting to sort of capture the unpredictableness of it.
1: There's another relationship that I find quite fascinating in the film, and that's between the lead character and his mother. At one point, it does feel as though he might actually be honest Mm -hmm. with her and let it all out, and it would be simplistic to say that that's exactly what happens. I won't Mm -hmm. give away too much, but... What were your feelings when you were mm-hmm. writing this relationship between the boy and his mother? Because it's not, it's not necessarily close, is it? But she, is, she does come across as someone who has the very best intentions mm-hmm. and she's doing her best.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, there were versions of the script where I had written that scene. You know, what would it be like if he told her? And it always felt not the movie I was making, you know? And in my movie, he was going to carry this tension and this secret with him to the end, you know? And that was sort of part of the tragedy was that she might, we feel that she could have helped him, but he was too scared, you know? And I thought that that was more of an honest way to explore the narrative than giving the audience this sort of obligatory scene where he admits or confesses and finds her acceptance or finds her disappointed or disappointment. It felt about somebody who was getting in his own way of happiness. And that's sort of the narrative I was telling. It was about a character digging digging his own grave, so to speak, and not the other way around, and self-imprisonment, per se. I think she is a good mother. You know, and I think that, you know, we as an audience have a perspective about his life that maybe he doesn't have. And that's also where the tragedy of the narrative comes from.
1: Eliza Hittman's new film Beach Rats is in cinemas this week. Still to come, we'll sit down with Icelandic director Erlinga Thorodson to hear about his tense new thriller set amongst some stunning scenery. But first, a word from the news desk. The Producers Guild of America has unveiled its list of nominees for the Outstanding Producer of Documentary Theatrical Motion Pictures Award. The titles include Jane, a film about the pioneering primatologist Jane Goodall, and City of Ghosts, the story of citizen journalists reporting on the city of Raqqa while it was under the rule of ISIS. We spoke to director Matthew Heinemann during the release of the film back in July. This film is a celebration of of individuals, again, risking their lives to, to, to expose the truth and to, to shed light on dark corners of the world. We would have no idea what's happening in Raqqa if it wasn't for these guys. And following the success of the latest big screen adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express, 20th Century Fox is preparing another outing for Agatha Christie's moustached detective of choice, Hercule Poirot. Death on the Nile is expected to again see Kenneth Branagh in both the director's chair and the leading role. The novel was first published back in 1937 and last made it to cinema screens in 1978 in a film starring Betty Davis, Mia Farrow, Maggie Smith and Angela Lansbury, plus a very memorable poster by designer Richard Amsell. And the clever curators at MUBI have assembled another standout selection of titles this week, including the memorable 1981 Japanese film Kagero ZA, And the clever curators at MUBI have assembled another standout selection of titles this week, including the 1981 Japanese film Kakeruza by Sejun Suzuki. This surreal fantasy thriller features sumptuous imagery to accompany the story of a playwright in the 1920s who happens upon a beautiful woman who may or may not be a ghost. MUBI is the curated movie side of cult, classic and award-winning films. Sample a month for free by heading to MUBI.com slash monocle. That's M-U-B-I slash monocle. This is The Cinema Show. Stay tuned. The world seems to have fallen in love with the sun-drenched sights of Lisbon, but for the German director Wim Wenders, his love affair with the city and Portugal has been going on for quite some time. His affection for all things Portuguese is such that just last month, the Portuguese president decided to award him an order of merit as a thank you for his friendship to the country. His 1994 film, Lisbon Story, was shot in an old palace perched on top of a hill in the Alfama neighbourhood. But the curious thing is that the palace's owner, Frederic Cousteau, who had purchased it just a couple of months before he started shooting, agreed not to start his renovation works to allow time for the film to be made. Here's Monocle's Carlotta Rabello with a look at the Palacio Belmonte and its role in Lisbon Story.
3: Perched at the top of a hill in sunny Lisbon, the Palacio Belmonte is a striking structure in the horizon. Not only is one of the few buildings that survived the 1755 earthquake that destroyed most of the Portuguese capital, but it stands right opposite the better-known and more visited Castelo de saint Jorge. That's because these days the palace has a new life as a luxury boutique hotel and before you frown at this idea, let me tell you that the restoration work was done meticulously, using the methods under the Venice Charter. That dictates that you have to use the same materials that were used at the time of the construction, even if that means having to create thousands of nails made of the same materials that it was made originally. This new era of Palacio Belmonte started in 1994, when French entrepreneur and ecologist Frédéric Cousteau saw the 15th century palace in disrepair and immediately fell in love with it. Well, I'm a landscape collector, you know, and when I saw the views, I said, "Ah, that's a landscape, I can collect that landscape. But landscape, you know, it's a strange thing. You collect them, but you don't own them. It belongs to everyone It's fitting that the person who eventually bought up the palace feels that the right thing to do is to share it with the rest of the world. Well let me tell you Frederick wasn't the first one and that's why we're here. <laughs> The year is 1994, the same year when the palace is bought up by Frederick, and the iconic German filmmaker and director Wim Wenders chooses Portugal for his next film. Called Lisbon Story, the film places Palacio Belmonte as a center figure, acting almost as a major character. It is, too, playing its part. In the film, we see the building exactly in the same state that it was when Frederick started to renovate it, with cracked walls and layers of paint missing from it, heavy wood doors missing some TLC, and the creaking sound of the floorboards. The film follows the story of a fictitious movie director, Frederick Monroe, who was also featured in Vendor's 1982 film The State of Things, making Lisbon's story kind of a sequel to it. Played by Patrick Bachau, Munro moves to Lisbon and then invites sound engineer Philip Winter, played by Rudiger Vogel, to come over to the Portuguese capital to help gather some sounds for an upcoming film. Upon arrival, Philip can't find the director, and the whole movie surrounds that mystery. In his search for the director, he ends up stumbling upon a place to sleep, which is where our main character today, the Palacio Belmonte, comes into place. It's a movie that is true to Vendor's aesthetic as a director, very emotional with city scenes and honouring the space around it. It also poses as a slight nod of recognition to the cinema industry, not only due to the plot of the film, but also because it features a cameo by the renowned Portuguese director Manuel de Oliveira, who died in 2015, but at the time of the film was already the oldest living active film director in the world. But vendors knew he couldn't have a movie with a sound engineer as the main character without having a well-thought-out soundscape and music. That's when the famous Portuguese folk music group Madre Deus comes in, and it's due to them that our main character ends up navigating more than necessary through the palace, allowing us to see it in all its beauty. Monroe is immediately mesmerized by the group's singer, Teresa Salgueiro, and ends up bonding with her and the band. Do
2: you have a key for the house? was also so. You must have a key. take mine
3: Portuguese like to think of Lisbon's story as Wim Wender's own love letter to the city. And Palacio Belmonte just helps bring that thought home too, strolling around the neighbourhood of Alfama to reach it, and then its beautiful blue-tile murals and gardens featured on the screen. Some say that it was because of the film that Frédéric Cousteau decided to buy the palace in the first place. I, for one, choose to believe that was the case. For Monocle, I'm Carlotta Rubello.
1: Thank you, Carlotta. Well, we'll venture away from the beach now. You might want to change out of your swimwear and pop on a warm coat because we're off to Iceland. Filmmakers have been flocking here in recent years to make use of the country's stunning and often unusual natural scenery. The first entry in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy came here to shoot an early training sequence between Christian Bale and Liam Neeson. The science fiction film Oblivion, starring Tom Cruise, also makes great use of Iceland's snowy landscape and gaping waterfalls. Darren Aronofsky made the black sandy beach of Reynisfjara a key setting in his 2014 film *Noah*, And those incredible waterfalls popped up yet again in the opening sequence of the 2012 science fiction film Prometheus. But with such a tiny population, just 330,000, it's quite uncommon for a home-grown film to make such great use of its own land. Director Erlinger Throdsen's new film is a welcome exception. Rift casts the chilly remote hills of Iceland as the eerie backdrop to the story of two men in a secluded cabin haunted by a strange presence. (laughs)
0: Rift is a psychological thriller mystery with some horror elements. And it's about these two guys who used to be a couple. Now they've broken up and one calls the other one up in the middle of the night and sounds like he's going to do something harmful to himself. So the other guy drives up. To a cabin in the middle of nowhere to save him but once he gets there he realizes that things are not quite what they seem and then it starts getting a little spooky
1: and your film it builds upon this feeling of there being some sort of eerie tension but it's not obvious exactly where that tension is coming from it it's a little bit difficult to work out how that tension is being built it really builds subconsciously can you speak to the technique that you are tapping into to try and build that that feeling
0: yeah, I think like overall, the feeling that I really wanted to kind of get through into the movie is that, you know, that like when you have broken up with somebody and you have to go meet them for some reason, and there's like this weird tension in the air. I kind of wanted to like bring that tension into the film. And like technique wise, I think it, w- it was a lot to do with just the buildup and the tension and the script are there to begin with. But like filming it, we used a lot of deliberately paced shots. There's a lot of It's not like a very fast paced movie, but I think there's a lot in it. So hopefully it doesn't feel too slow. And then just in terms of editing, just kind of trying to keep the tension going throughout. It's hard to tell like what the actual techniques are that we use, like a combination of a lot of things that hopefully, you know, when it's all ready, uh, it comes through the way I wanted it to.
1: Absolutely. And I think judging from a a couple of the responses that I've seen elsewhere, people have drawn comparisons to some fairly admired horror classics. Because you just mentioned the the editing technique there, and I wanted to touch upon that a little bit more, because you've used sound to great effect in this film. And, And I often find in films that are perhaps out and proud as horror films, the sound use can sometimes be just a little bit too obvious. And I felt that with your film, you have called upon some... I mean, it does hark back to some classic films, as I mentioned, but it doesn't do it too obviously. You don't necessarily sit there watching this film and immediately think, oh, I remember that from so-and-so film. It feels as though you've done it just subtly enough. Were there certain titles from the history of filmmaking that were perhaps on your mind while you were putting this together?
0: Like in terms of horror movies, I think the one horror movie that um, I was really influenced by, certainly like in terms of, you know, the red coat uh, is don't look now. It's this kind of tightrope that you have to walk, you know, when you're trying to um, pay an homage to a film, like how far are you able to go until it becomes kind of obnoxious. So I was trying to like not go too far. But then like in terms of other movies that inspired me, they weren't actually horror movies. The two films that were the biggest inspirations were um, Persona by Ingmar Bergman, which I guess you could kind of call a horror movie in a way. And then the other film is a British film called Weekend by Andrew Haig. Those two films are very, very stylistically different. Persona is very formal and, and stylized and kind of set in a like an alternate reality universe, whereas Weekend is very naturalistic and and almost feels like improvisational. And I was trying to kind of find some sort of middle ground between those films, uh, especially for keeping the performances in the um, naturalistic mode and the look of the film a little bit more in the um, formal stylized mode.
1: Well, you were certainly spoiled when it came to the look of this film, I think, because it was shot in Iceland and the locations, I think, have been used to absolute terrific effect. And it's funny, the films that you mentioned just there, they all, even though they are, as you say, quite stylistically different and different in their theme, certainly too, but they all share this, I suppose it's a non-specific coolness to their look. It does feel as though they're very on trend at the moment, even though they all came out uh a little while ago at least. Tell me about how the look of the film came together for you because, of course, this is shot in Iceland. Iceland is one of the most naturally beautiful places in the world. Did you really have to choose very carefully? I, I've, I, I can imagine there would have been so many places that would have been perfectly suited to what you were looking for in, in this film.
0: Yeah, Iceland is like it's beautiful, but it's also very creepy. You can find really, really scary locations, and I wanted to go to a like, a location in Iceland that we hadn't seen much on film before because a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, foreign productions come to Iceland and they shoot in the most kind of gorgeous areas. And I wanted to do something that was a little bit colder and a little bit more barren in a way because I thought that fit well with what's happening in the relationship between these two guys. It's like they used to be happy, but now this is kind of the um, winter of their relationship, so I wanted to find a location that felt very stark and very uninviting in a way. So we shot underneath this glacier that is also a volcano, so there's this tundra. It's like a lava field, hardened lava, and it has this very, very kind of strange look to it, and there's a lot of contrasts in the nature there. So when I was writing the script, I didn't have that location specifically in mind, but it quickly was suggested to me and my family actually has a lot of ties to that location. So when they brought it up, when I went to do my first location scout, it just all kind of
1: made sense and it just felt perfect. So from from what I understand, you grew up in Iceland, is that right? Yes, I
0: grew up, yeah, born and raised. And then I moved to New York to go to school about eight years ago. And then I stayed in New York for approximately eight years and then I actually just moved back to Iceland a few months ago or like a month ago
1: So how, uh, having your childhood in, in Iceland, uh, unfortunately, I'm not lucky enough to have been to Iceland just yet. It's, it's certainly uh, near the top of my list of places I really must go soon. But from what I understand, it, it is a, a very small place, not just in geography, but uh, uh, and it's got quite a small population as well. How much did your, the sights and sounds of your childhood perhaps play into some of the, the look and feel of what the film became?
0: The entire population here is 330,000 people, so it's it's very small. You know, we say it as a joke, but it's very you know real that like everybody knows everybody, and and if you don't know somebody personally, you definitely know you know their aunt or their cousin or something. It feels very um, close. The community here feels very close. And growing up, we have a lot of creepy locations. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, you would just go out and play on the you know these black sand beaches, and in these pretty much, like, not safe environments. And, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, so this was back when people just let their kids run free and weren't necessarily, like, paying too much attention what they were doing. But anyway, so um, we also have these really creepy children's legends. So, you know, our most common lullaby is basically about a mother singing her child to sleep so it's not awake when she drowns it. Our Christmas stories are basically about these troll people who come and steal things from you or maybe steal you away and like eat you so i think we we grow up with a certain amount of scary stuff just kind of put into us like when we're kids so i think that definitely has affected you know my trajectory
1: as a filmmaker erlinger throdson's new film rift played at the london film festival and recently premiered in iceland keep an eye out for local release dates That's all for this week's programme. Next week, we're ditching the digital and picking up the pencil for a special look at the art of illustration. Our approach is just to think about what we're most passionate about and hope that they appeal to everybody and they normally do. We'll find out how the publishing house Taschen creates some of the finest printed coffee table tributes to our favourite films. Today's show was edited and mixed by Christy Evans and researched by Yulin Gauphan. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you for listening.